Hello and welcome to the Living With Purpose podcast. I'm your host, Simone Denny, and I'm here to uncover how we find more joy, greater fulfillment and deeper purpose in our lives. I will be sharing my own journey, as well as insights from thought leaders and everyday people who are living with purpose and have created a life they truly love. Hello, lovely people. So wonderful to have you here today. I am excited as we are stepping into spring here in the Southern Hemisphere, which is uh, very good news for someone like me who could happily skip winter and live in eternal summer. I'm um, not one of these people who loves rugging up. Uh, so bring on the longer days and the sunshine. I'm really looking forward to that. So. For those of you who've been with me a while, you know that I've been speaking or writing quite a lot about the importance of meaningful connection, purpose, about bringing our whole selves to what we do in the world. And I'm continuing on with this theme and with today's very inspiring guest, Kyla Colbin. And Kyla is an incredibly intelligent and self-aware human with so many strings to her bow it was really hard to know where to start you know when you sometimes listen to people speak and you you think oh my gosh I would just love to have part of their brain would be amazing so Kyla really made an impression on me and I've followed quite a lot of her work since um, a workshop I did with her and I'm super impressed and enamored by her so one of the many things that Kyla has mastered is being a certified facilitator of Brene Brown's Dare to Lead program. So in the podcast today, we talk about what it means to be courageous, what a courageous conversation looks like. So how do we have one of these conversations that is brave? We discuss leadership both inside and outside of the work. Um, really, this can apply to anybody from you know, being a parent to leading a, a large organization. We talk about the importance of vulnerability and belonging and so much more. Kyla Colvin is a co-founder of Boma Global and the CEO of Boma New Zealand. She spearheaded the hugely successful Singularity U New Zealand and Australia summits, introducing more than 2,500 people to exponential technologies and their impact on humanity. So what this means in layman terms is looking at what does the future hold for us, and that might be in technology, um, for just basically what is the overall impact that this will have for us as humans, and, and how do we fit into that. She is also a co-founder of the nonprofit Ministry of Awesome, I love the sound of that. The curator and licensee of TEDx Christchurch in New Zealand, and I know she's just been running a TEDx this past weekend, and TEDx Scott Base in Antarctica. Kyla is a certified uh, EXO consultant, creating exponential organizations. Um, again, this is around this, how do we create for the future and, and what does the future look like? Uh, climate, um, she's a climate, project ambassador who trained with Al Gore and a project management professional. She's renowned for national and international um, as an international public speaker. She's sought after by corporates, government agencies, industry groups and more. So I feel very blessed today to have Kyla with me on the show and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation together and I hope you will too. So again, just a reminder to listen in to the end where she shares a, a discount with you for her program and if you enjoy today's podcast, please um, jump onto iTunes and give us a rating or share this podcast with others on your Insta stories or your Instagram. Thanks again for being here. And without further ado, I introduce you to Kyla. Hello, 
Hello and welcome to today's episode. I am delighted to have the very inspiring Kyla Colvin join us today. So welcome, Kyla. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's, it's wonderful to have you here. And I know you have an American accent, but you are also a, a Kiwi of, of sorts. Do you, I am. Do you describe yourself as a, as a New Zealander or an American or a bit of both? Uh, I'm definitely both. I, I have dual citizenship and I've been in New Zealand for 15 years. So um, this has absolutely become my Tūranga YY, and I am proud to call myself a New Zealander. Um, but of course, I uh, was born and bred in uh, New York City in the United States and um, that is my heritage. So I, I, I claim both. Beautiful. Yes. And I loved your Maori welcome in, in one of your recent workshops. So I love that you're embracing the New Zealand culture so beautifully. <laughs> Thank you. You know, it took me a really long time uh, to do that. I was here for probably 10 years before I said anything in Tadeo from the stage. Um, and that was, I had a real hesitance because I was concerned about being inappropriate or about appropriating. And uh, my team and I have been on, uh, well, we're at the early stages of our journey to become, to increase our bicultural capacity and to, um, to start to live up to our obligations as treaty partners. And so uh, last year I had the great privilege of spending a day at Tuahiwi Marae. Uh, and we've really started to make progress on understanding our roles and responsibilities um, and how we can model um, a, a truly bicultural New Zealand. Mm, I love that. And I love that there is this increase in embracing Tereo. And, you know, you talk a lot about courage and to speak a different language that's not your mother tongue is courageous, but I'm really... Um, you know, love. I love anyone who is giving it a go and sharing those. You know, part of our our heritage, um, anytime they can. So, <clears throat> I came to one of your talks recently, the Dare to Lead um, talk in Auckland, and I came with my husband James, and we were so um, impressed and informed by your wonderful talk and really your breadth of knowledge and the way you speak, and we really you know, it was very thought provoking for us both. But what I found interesting was that James had actually seen you speak to his company <laughs> another time and you were speaking on a very different topic. You were speaking as what he called a futurist about predicting the future. And I remember him coming home from that talk and he was <clears throat> really bubbling with excitement about um, how amazing this woman was and all of the um, things that he was learning about the future of technology and how that impacts humanity. And, uh, and I thought, wow, here's this woman that um, we've both heard and I've been super impressed in the leadership space and here he is listening to you as a futurist. And I think that's what makes you a very interesting person is that you are an expert in a number of different things. I think for a lot of us, we feel like we're jack of all trades, but maybe master of none, or we've mastered one thing, but you feel like somebody who has mastered so many different areas in your life. Do you think you can share a little bit about how you've come to do what you do in the world? Um, sure. Those are very kind words. As you were talking, I could feel my head growing three sizes, um, which I'm not sure is entirely a good thing. Um, so, I mean, my career has been, um, I consider it to have been very Forrest Gumpy. Uh, you know, I, I've been really privileged to sort of um, stumble from one thing into the next, um, following mostly the things I think are most interesting and what has become apparent to me as my career's progressed is how interconnected all of these things are. So I look at, for example, the work that I've done, uh, you know, where your husband would have first encountered me, which was the work that I did with Singularity University. Mm -hmm. Um, and Singularity University is an organization based in Silicon Valley dedicated to the study of exponentially accelerating technologies and their impact on humanity. And, uh, I, you know, I, I look at that work and I think, well, how can we talk about where we're going with artificial intelligence or robotics or surveillance capitalism or big data or um, uh, you know, bioengineering uh, or genetic engineering? How, how can we have any of those conversations without also having conversations about ethics and courage and who we want to be as people? And how can we have conversations about courage without looking at the incredibly challenging 
context of disruption that we are living in and into. And so for me, these things, it might seem like I'm doing kind of a whole bunch of different things, but to me, these things are absolutely interwoven and interconnected, and they are all essential to the robust conversations that I want us to be having about who we are and who we want to be. Mm. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's it important. does. It, yeah, and I, I, I can actually, now that I know both sides, I can really see how you're how important it is to be training leaders in this new way. I mean, for things like innovation, creativity, and that does take courage for our future. So I, I really like that. Um, you, yeah, you, you're also, you're involved in a lot of different areas right now. I know you just mentioned you've just run TEDx Christchurch this past weekend. Can you share a few of the other things that you, you do at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So, so my day job is um, I co-founded a global organization called BOMA, and I'm chief executive of BOMA New Zealand. Um, so BOMA, it's not an acronym. It's a word that comes from Africa and refers to the enclosure where the elders and community gather to have meaningful conversations, make meaningful decisions, and take meaningful action. And with BOMA, what we're looking at is how do we combine what you need to know with who you need to be? in order for you to take smart ethical action, smart ethical leadership. Um, and so we do a whole range of programs. Um, all of our programs at BOMA come under the general umbrella of transformational learning experiences. So we run leadership programs. We have a program for company directors. Uh, we have a program for secondary school educators. Um, we do public events. We do large-scale um, like summits. We did one in April that was focused on the future of food and fiber in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And um, all of these things are really coming back to that core question is what is the future we want to create and who do we need to be to create that future? Um, so that's really my, my number one focus right now. And within that work, um, I get the great privilege of going into topics like exponential technologies, but also topics like, you know, the one where you and I first met a few weeks mm -hmm. ago, uh, which is Brene Brown's uh, Dare to Lead curriculum. Mm, wonderful. And so for people who aren't familiar with even this term exponential technology, what, how would you, what would you ex describe that as? Um, yeah, so exponential technology is technology where the price performance is doubling on a consistent basis. So what we mean by price performance is how much performance can you get for a fixed price? So for example, with computing, um, how many million instructions per second can you buy for $1,000? Um, the flip side of it is how much is price coming down for a given level of performance? So with um, gene sequencing, for example, um, how much does it cost to sequence a human genome? The performance stays con constant, but the price comes down uh, regularly. And with exponential technologies, what happens is that that price performance ratio doubles on a consistent basis. The most famous kind of version of this is uh, what's known as Moore's Law. Some of your listeners have almost certainly heard of it. Um, but Moore's Law is, you know, the fifth iteration of this phenomenon when it comes to computing. And uh, only one example of how this applies across a whole range of digital technologies. So mm -hmm. we see the same phenomenon in um, uh, mapping uh, neuronal activity in the human brain. We see the same phenomenon in gene sequencing. We see the same phenomenon in um, uh, how we increase capacity of solar panels, uh, the same kind of consistent doubling phenomenon, because as our technology gets better, we continually use better tools to make better tools. Mm. Um, and one of the things we find with exponential technologies is that our brains are really not wired to understand the implication of an exponential progression versus a linear progression. And so we continually get caught out and think, oh, that'll never be a thing, or oh, that's gonna take a hundred years for it to be a thing. And then, you know, in five minutes it's here and we haven't really thought through what we need to think through in order to be prepared for it. Mm. So as part of your job helping people to prepare for the the, the epic changes that are kind of coming. Yeah, I mean, the epic changes we're already mm -hmm. seeing, right? And then the ones that are still to come. Um, so you mentioned in the intro, um, uh, you, you called me a futurist and talked about predicting the future. And one of the things that we're really mindful of is that, um, you know, I, I, will, I will tell you um, for certain that I cannot predict the future in, in any way. Um, one, of the, one of the beautiful things that I learned 
um, years ago is that the job of a futurist is not actually to predict the future. The job of a futurist is to help us understand that um, we don't have a singular future. We have a range of possible futures. Mm. And our job is to actually help people map the range of possible futures so that we can identify which ones are more desirable and what we can do in the present to make the desirable ones more likely and to make it less likely that we get an undesirable one. And when we think about it that way, what it means is that instead of conceiving of the future as a fixed static thing that is out there waiting to happen to us and over which we have no agency, instead it is something that is created by us every single day and we have a choice in what the ultimate future ends up looking like. Uh, and to me, this is a really important distinction because we are cre actively creating the future every single day. And if we are not attentive to the work that we're doing, we are likely going to end up with a future that is not one that we want. Yeah. And I've heard you speak about this idea that <clears throat> we personally need to be involved in shaping the future, not just relying on governments. Um, I think for a lot of us, it can feel quite overwhelming, the whole AI thing and will we be replaced and um, so how can we as individuals um, you know be involved in shaping the future well, first of all, you, you are. You already are. You're like It's not something you can opt out of. Um, I, I don't know if you've heard that saying, you're not sitting in traffic, you are traffic. Yeah. Uh, it's the same thing with the future, right? Like whether you're choosing to or not, your, your actions, it's the same as, uh, you know, if you don't vote, you're still making a choice, right? Mm -hmm. You're still, you're still um, choosing something. Um, and so... So we're all creating the future all of the time. There's no way to kind of get away from that. And so the, the, the shift that we're after is not um, a shift away from not creating the future and towards creating it. The shift that we're after is away from um, creating it unconsciously, passively by default mm -hmm. um, and not appreciating your agency in creating it and, and instead moving towards a, an understanding that um, this is something we can do consciously, intentionally, uh, leading with our hearts. Um, and uh, and with um, with aspiration towards what would be a better version, uh, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible to steal from Charles Eisenstein. So the way to do that is first of all to just to just get curious. Like that's the number one thing is get cur get curious about everything. Get curious about the um, technology that you use, about the world that we live in, about politics, about society, about people. Um, get curious about what is going on around us and get curious about your own self and how you respond to these things, what drives you, what brings out the best in you, what brings out the worst in you, um, and what kind of work you would need to do in order to, um, to more consistently be the best version of yourself. Um, and then with that curiosity, um, start to bring uh, a mindfulness and attention into the choices that you're making because each one of those choices that is your that is your activism in the future that you're creating and so you know if you have kids how do you talk to your kids about the, their possibilities um, having kids is the ultimate act of creating the future right um, and the way that we talk to our kids in terms of shaping their mental map of the world and shaping their range of possibilities um, determines whether your kids see themselves as active participants in the world that they're creating or as passive recipients of it um, uh, Think about how you're using your technology, you know, what, what kind of messages that you're putting out on uh, Facebook, on LinkedIn. Think about the work that you do every day and how that work can be used, uh, how you can show up to that work to um, model a new possibility for the people who work alongside you and how that work, whatever it is, can be used to um, help other people think about the future that they're creating. So this is something that is not, it's not, there, there isn't like a committee mm -hmm. out there that's like the, the committee on the future that is like making the decisions and then just, you know, distributes it to the rest of us. Um, this is stuff that apply, you know, if, when you, when you go to a cafe and you order a coffee, like the way that you talk to the person behind the counter, that will help shape the kind of future that we want. Like it's every single act, every single day uh, is, is a creative act. Mm. And so understanding our own power in that, I think is, it's essential for all of us. Mm, I really love that. And it aligns really nicely with this podcast as well about living on purpose, because I feel like you are 
as you're saying, you're purposefully creating your own future by making these choices. And I, I love that. And I think on the flip side of that, people feel a lot of fear around change and they really are trying to hold on to the old the old model because it's what we know and what feels safe and also is what's going to pay our bills at the end of the day. And I guess when we look in the future, our jobs as we have them now might not be there at all. Um, and, and I think part of our identity is very much linked with our jobs. So how do we need, to, how do we kind of move, move to letting go of the idea of the, the old job model even? Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing I think we have to do is have some compassion for each other, have compassion for ourselves and for each other. Um, one of the, when I, when I trained with uh, Brene Brown uh, to facilitate her Dare to Lead curriculum, one of the, I mean, she had so many gems that were, <laughs> were, were beautiful takeaways, but one of the really profound ones for me was um, the understanding that uh, the biggest shame trigger for people at work is fear of irrelevance. Mm -hmm. And in the work that I do, where we're talking about the future, where we're talking about disruption, where we're talking about you know, new technologies, where we're talking about the kind of world we want to create, that work can be really triggering for people in terms of fear of irrelevance. And um, what I have seen over and over again, certainly in the big corporations that I work with, um, what I see is we end up with these kind of two um, uh, warring factions. And one faction is the one that's saying, we have to go into the future and Uber and Airbnb and Facebook and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, big data, rah, rah, rah. And, uh, and, and, the, and the other group is saying, actually, we have been running this organization for 150 years or 200 years or whatever it is. And the first group is saying, yes, but you're all about to be dinosaurs. And the second group is saying, you wouldn't even have salaries if it weren't for us. And they see each other as, um, as blind. Uh, they see each other as um, uninformed. They see each other kind of as the enemy. And one of the um, models that we use, we use a model called polarity management, which is about understanding that you cannot have change without stability and you cannot have stability without change that these are not um, concepts that are at odds with each other. These are complementary um, elements that are a polarity. They are complementary elements that serve a bigger system. And so if you think about um, you know, what has to happen in order for change to be effective, well, once you go through the change, it has to be embedded within the way that you work. You have to be able to uh, replicate it consistently. You have to be able to build on it and grow from it. And you can't do that without embracing the benefits of stability. And if you get stuck in stability, um, then without understanding the benefits of change, you will end up stagnating and dying. And so the way that stability thrives is by continually growing, by continually bringing in new innovations in a healthy way. But if you have too much change, then people get disoriented and it gets chaotic and it feels unsafe and all the terrible things come out of it. And so what we try to do is really shift that narrative away from, oh, the only reason that you don't like change is because you're afraid. And the only reason that you, you know, you, you like change. And so you're the one who's leading us into the future and all the other people don't know what they're doing. And, or the people who are leading us into the future are mavericks and they're, you know, going to ruin us all. And we're the only ones who are kind of, you know, keeping the, keeping the, keeping it together here. Um, we really try to shift that narrative away from that and go, actually, without the people who are keeping the place stable and who are keeping the bills paid and who are keeping the lights on and who are keeping the machine running, we have no business. And without the people who are, who are thinking constantly about the future and helping us grow and lead us forward, we have no business and we need each other in order to thrive. Mm, yeah, interesting. So you've got this, this fine balance between the two and one, it's not one or the other, which I, I like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So I know that you have children. I know you shared some of your parenting stories in your workshop, which were wonderful. How would you be like, how would you say, what would you say to other parents about preparing your children for the future? Yeah. So I have three beautiful stepsons. Um, and I, I will say, I feel it. I often feel like I won the stepmom lottery. <laughs> like they're, um, they're fantastic boys and both their father and their mother have really welcomed me into their lives. So I feel really privileged to have the relationship with them that I do. Um, 
I guess the biggest thing I would say is, you know, don't be afraid to have big conversations with your kids. The same conversation that you and I are having right now is a conversation that I would absolutely be having with my 11-year-old stepson. Um, we talk about um, we talk about shame. We talk about courage. We talk about vulnerability. Um, we talk about understanding uh, ourselves and each other. And um, we really, uh, you know, do the same work to hold them to account that that we're doing in our, you know, professional uh, spheres. And so, you know, the, the, and they love it. They, they really, they really love it. And they feel, you know, one of the things I talk to them about is that <laughs> most of us as adults never got this kind of education. Most of us as adults were never taught, you know, emotional literacy. We weren't taught to understand our shame triggers. We weren't taught to understand the way that we offload pain by, you know, dumping it on somebody else. Um, we weren't taught to, you know, when, when we were little, you know, if, if I, if, when I was a kid, if I hit someone, I'd be maybe forced to apologize, but I wasn't challenged to think through like, what happened? Why did I hit that person? Oh, because mom said something to, to me that I was doing something wrong. And I felt angry when she said that. And so I took that anger out on this other kid. And so, so we really, you know, uh, work with the kids a lot to help them understand those things. And I think, uh, you know, all of these conversations about, about the future and about um, courage and about who we are and what we need to know, they're all as relevant for the littlies as they are for us as adults. So bring them in, bring them into the fold. <laughs> yeah, I, it was actually, um, you know, you have a lot of little breakout moments in your workshops where you discuss it and discuss the content that you share. And I know it was about daring to lead and we think about that as leading in the workplace. Um, but for James and I, we spoke a lot about um, our own <clears throat> leadership in the home and our, you know, encouraging our children to lead. And we ended up talking a lot about parenting in that um, workshop, interestingly enough. And, um, but also, you know, switching that around, the triggers that, things that trigger, how our kids trigger us as well and feeling those feelings. So it, it really does beautifully work both ways. So, so I, j I just would say, um, you know, I'm, I'm mindful to, to clarify that I am not any kind of parenting expert in any way. Um, and, 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 you know, the training that I received was about facilitating the material in the organizational context. Um, you know, that being said, the material is about how we connect with each other as people. Um, and the organizational context is an arbitrary, uh, you know, fiction that we've invented. Uh, you know, we connect with each other at people at work. We connect with each other as people at home. We connect with our kids as people. So of course it's applicable. Um, I had a, one of the boys uh, is um, uh, like the most high strung of the three boys. We had an incredible conversation once where we were talking about courage and he said, um, do you think I could be brave? I get so nervous. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, it, the only way you can be brave is because you're overcoming your fears because you're overcoming something that makes you that makes you scared um you have the chance to be the bravest of all of us because because you do that and then he said are you brave and i said i try to be and then i left the room and burst into tears because it was so sweet and so touching and you know i another one of the boys um i was putting him to bed and he, he had we'd had a um a scuffle earlier where, um, you know, I had said, asked him to do something and he'd thrown a tantrum about it. And when I was putting him to bed, I said, you know, when we ask you, um, when, when, when we tell you to, you know, to, to pay attention or whatever it is, um, do you feel like we're telling you that you're a bad kid? And he said, you know, I know, I know now that is after he'd calmed down. He said, I know now that you're not, but at the time I feel like you are. Mm -hmm. And he's nine years old. And so, you know, the idea that we have to wait until they're grownups to have these kinds of conversations is a complete fiction. The earlier, the earlier, the better. Mm, I couldn't agree more. I, I love that. And that's, you know, it's creating mindful children, but it's also creating children who can lead themselves. And I think that word, you know, dare to lead, we often get hung up with this idea that leadership is just for people at the top of an organization. And we often think, well, I'm not a leader or I'm not in a leadership role, but even our children are learning to lead themselves. And, and all of us are leaders in some way. If you're a parent, you're a leader. So I, I, I like this idea that it's, that daring to lead can apply to any area of your life. 
Yeah, completely. The definition that we use is of a leader is anyone who sees the potential in people and processes and is willing to work to bring about that potential. Mm, mm, I love that. So you are a, a Brene Brown facilitator and you share her work with the world. What drew you to her work and how has it personally impacted your life, maybe at work or at home or uh, well, in, in, in my true Forrest Gump fashion, um, I went to her website to see if we could invite her to come to New Zealand um, and, uh, you know, filled in a form on the website and they replied and said, uh, she's not taking on any new speaking opportunities, um, but you should come and do this training. So I said, well, that looks, that looks great. I will do it. So, um, so I went and did the training, uh, you know, it was, it was, um, wasn't entirely last minute, but it was very much just an opportunity presented itself and I took it. Mm -hmm. And when I went to do that training, um, I, I always go to these things with an open mind. Um, uh, and when I say open mind, uh, I, what I mean by that is that, um, you know, I can be, I can be cynical. I, you know, I know there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of material out there that, um, you know, either has one or two good lines and then not a whole, a whole lot more or that looks good on the surface. And then when you dig into it, it's like, it doesn't quite feel right. And so I went, uh, I think I said the other day at the talk you were at that I went there, um, not as an unmitigated fangirl, um, you know, looking forward to it, excited for what I would learn, but, but also open to, you know, how much I would or would not, um, value the material. And, it was, uh, you know, among the most impactful three days I've, I've ever spent. And as you said, I immediately found ways to apply it, not only in the organizational context, but also, you know, with my family, with the kids. Uh, and uh, it really, you know, forced me to um, look inside and, and try to be a better leader every day with, with my team and with my family. Um, and the great thing about the Dare to Lead curriculum and the Dare to Lead material is that it is so practical and so tangible and so specific and so behavioral. And so you, when I did it, I came away going, oh my gosh, this, I, I just did this. That is exactly what she was talking about in this piece of the framework. And here is exactly what's going on. And here's how I can address it. And so it's, it's among the most empowering content I've ever come across because it is so specific and it is so tangible. It's not um, you know, it's not, uh, it's not ethereal. It's definitely not soft skills. It's some of the hardest stuff that you can, uh, work with, but it is, it is incredibly powerful in terms of what you get to take away and how you immediately can apply it. Mm. And it sounds like you have really applied it as a workplace in, in Boma as well. Like I love that everybody is holding each other to account in your organization by the sounds oh, of it. Yeah. They, yeah, that, and that includes people holding me to account. Be careful what you wish for. Um, but, you know, we had this great uh, experience where, um, you know, one of the four skill sets of courage is braving trust. And braving is an acronym that breaks down to boundaries, reliability, accountability, uh, vault, which is confidentiality, uh, integrity, non-judgment, and generosity of interpretation. And, um, you know, I told this story uh, at the event you were at where um, I got an email that really, you know, did not bring out my better self. And uh, I was, I was feeling quite snippy about it. And one person on my team uh, said, well, what do you think would, would be the most generous interpretation of the intent behind that email? And then another person on my team uh, forced me, she didn't force me, asked me, uh, <laughs> asked me to, to read the email aloud in a kind voice. And, and, and I did that. And we all agreed that actually it wasn't that bad of an email, but I had kind of read it with this intent. And so, um, so on the one hand, it's, um, you know, it's challenging. It's, it's challenging to be held to account every day. And I can tell you, I am so grateful for that challenge because um, it, it's, it's such a privilege to work with a team who are willing to um, help all of us hold ourselves to a higher standard. Um, so, and this, and, and the Dare to Lead curriculum has really given us powerful tools to do that. Mm, and it's really nice when you're practicing the work that you're teaching and sharing. I think that's super important. Yeah. So what does courage mean to you, Kyla? Um, well, you know, the, I mean, the standard line from the curriculum is that courage is a collection of four skill sets that are teachable, measurable, and observable. Um, 
courage to me, if I had to, you know, speak from my heart rather than from the workbook, um, courage to me means um, being willing to show up even when it's hard um, and being willing to, um, to bring my true self and to own my true role in things, um, even when I would rather protect myself or defend myself or um, point at you or point at someone else, uh, some, some external cause um, for whatever's going on. Uh, and that's the, that's, that's the leader that I want to be. That's what I want to bring out in my team. That's what I want to see our boys grow up to embody. Um, and that's, I think, the, what the world needs from us is our willingness to show up even when it's hard and to be unflinching and looking at our own, um, you know, the, the, the stuff that we bring to whatever the conversation or the circumstances um, and, uh, and own up to it um, and face whatever our, whatever our fear is, whatever our pain is, um, so that we can work towards something better. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think we kind of sold this idea that we should be fearless. And there's this idea of yeah. being fearless, and we'd probably be dead if we were fearless. But I, I like the idea of acknowledging that things are hard and that there will be fear. And that's a natural part of courage is having that fear. It's not that we have to stamp it out and not feel it, but it's actually how do we move through it into courage. Part of the um, research project for Dare to Lead um, Brene had a hypothesis that I shared and probably, you know, many of your listeners share that, um, that the number one barrier to courage is fear. And, um, she took that hypothesis to her group of aspirational leaders, people who are really, you know, embodying this kind of wholehearted leadership and said, you know, I have this, I have this, this idea that the number one barrier to courage is fear. What do you think about that? And they were all like, that's bullshit. Sorry, I can curse on your program. They're like, that's, that's, there's no way that that's true because we are afraid all the time every day. And the, the difference between wholehearted leaders and leaders who are not embodying courage is not that one, is a, one group is afraid and the other group isn't. It's that one group uh, responds to the fear by opening up and dealing with what is actually going on and the other group responds to the fear by protecting, defending, and armoring up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really, when we talk about courage, that's what it's about. It's about not protecting, not defending, not armoring up, being open even within, to being open to even, to sit with our fear, to sit with our vulnerability, to sit with our shame and, um, and move forward from it. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that probably leads me quite nicely into the next question, which is when you talk about this armoring up and defensiveness, what does that lack of courage look like in the workplace? Like how would that, how would that play out when we aren't being courageous in ourselves as leaders? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a whole heap of ways it, it plays out, but the, the number one uh, way that it shows up with kind of no close seconds is that when we don't have courage in our workplace, um, we aren't willing to have difficult conversations. And this is something that it's, it's, it's an epidemic. I don't think epidemic is too strong a word to use for it. It is, it's so prevalent, our resistance to sitting down with people and having difficult conversations. I'll tell you a little story. I, I don't remember if I, if I told it the other day, but um, I uh, spoke recently at an event where um, General Stanley McChrystal spoke just before me. And uh, this was a week-long festival, and I'd already given two talks. So this was my third talk. And um, the, he's a he's a four-star general. Uh, he led the Joint Special Operations Command. He led the fight against Al Qaeda in Iraq. Um, he's a you know he's a, a kind of a titan of the the U.S. military. And he gave his talk on leadership. And uh, he got to the end of his talk, and the MC Adam uh, got up on stage and he said, "So you know we've heard from." Kyla a couple of times already. We've been hearing about courage a lot this week. Uh, But of course, general, um, you know, when, when you're dealing with courage, it's at a whole nother level to what, you know, we've been talking about. And General McChrystal kind of got thoughtful and just replied to him, you know, I, I could tell you, I've been doing this for a long time and I know for certain it is far easier to be brave on the battlefield than it is to be brave in the boardroom. He said, I've known, I know men who have been on the front lines 20, 30 years who wouldn't hesitate to pick up a weapon against uh, an enemy, but who would struggle to speak the truth to 
uh, a superior or to someone they respect. Mm -hmm. And so this, um, the lack of courage in organizations, and it really starts from the top, like this willingness to have the difficult conversations. And, you know, one of the ways that I sum up the work when I'm, when I'm looking at it is that, you know, we, we're talking about a whole bunch of frameworks and we're talking about courage and empathy and vulnerability and shame. Really what we're talking about is dealing with what is actually going on. Like dealing with the actual thing. And so you might say something to me that triggers shame. And instead of dealing with the fact that I just feel shame, ashamed about that, I lash out at you or I lash out at someone next to me or I defend it or I just say yes and don't say anything and slink away and feel ashamed in the corner. Like there are a million ways that we respond that are not about dealing with what's actually going on. And the courage of this work, the courage that we're called to display is the courage to deal with what is actually going on. Mm. Yeah, that's very powerful. And I love that analogy of like sometimes it is easier when we're going out to a battlefield and it's almost faceless and we don't have to deal with the repercussions and feelings that come back from that. So I guess what the feeling is when we have these courageous conversations and we do speak our truth is vulnerability. And for many of us, we've been socialized to believe that vulnerability is weakness and um, why, you know, why would we want to go to work and show our vulnerability when we've been trained our whole life not to show vulnerability? So how do we make, how do we uh, allow ourselves to grow into vulnerability? Yeah. So, so we, it, it is the, the number one myth of vulnerability is that it's weakness. Our definition of vulnerability is risk, uncertainty, and emotional exposure. And um, because it's exposure, the, the reason that it's so hard is that it means we're open to attack. Mm. Um, and so we tend to conflate that with weakness, but, but what I would say is that to be willing to expose ourselves to attack takes extreme courage, mm -hmm. takes extreme strength. And so it's entirely the opposite. There is actually no way to get to courage without going through vulnerability. If it doesn't require vulnerability, there's nothing courageous about it, right? It's, if, it doesn't, if it doesn't make you nervous, it's not, it's not courage. <laughs> it's not brave. It's just something that is easy for you to do. Um, and so, you know, one, one thing that we're really mindful of is that um, nobody wants to be vulnerable. I don't want to be vulnerable. Nobody wants to be vulnerable, but everybody wants to be brave. Mm -hmm. And so really the, the big thing to understand is that we're not evangelizing vulnerability. We're not saying, yeah, vulnerability is the best and come do this work and you're going to love it. Cause mm -hmm. you know, I don't love it. <laughs> I still struggle with it as much as everybody. Um, but the, but what's true is that, um, the work of being courageous is awesome and you will love it. And the only way to get there, you know, like we all want to have run the marathon, but we don't always want to run the marathon. Um, this is the work to have run the marathon is, is, to, is to actually show up and be willing to be vulnerable. And then, you know, it, it, I, don't think it ever, I don't think it ever gets easy. It's never like, yay, now that, you know, my heart doesn't beat faster and my palms don't get sweaty and, you know, this is, this is fun. I don't think it ever gets easy in that sense. But what does happen is that those, that, that um, physical response, that um, physical emotional response to vulnerability start, stops impressing you, stops scaring you so much. Mm -hmm. So you go, okay, my heart's beating faster. My palms are sweating. This is part of my normal vulnerable response. Time to sit down and have the conversation. And it, you, know, you don't go, my heart's beating faster. My palms are sweaty. I can't do it. I'm going to run away. Mm -hmm. So that's really, that's really where, where we're wanting to get to is that, you know what, we get that, yep, we get this is a hard thing to do. We get that your heart's going to be faster. We get that your, you know, your breath is going to be shorter and you're going to find it difficult to speak and your throat might feel like it's closing up. Like we, all of those things are, are normal and they happen to everybody and you're going to feel all those things and you're still going to show up and, and have the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. It actually takes me back to you know, the time I, you know, I had 12, 15 years working in banking and with, you know, a lot of that time on the trading floor with a lot of men. And for me, being a woman, I really felt this extra need not to be vulnerable, uh, like even more so because it was being me and my feminine, which, you know, I wasn't valuing at that time. And I would love to go back and do it again in a different way. But I remember thinking, I just want to be like everybody else. And I just, 
want to be strong. I don't want people to see my weaknesses. I need to keep up with all of the guys. And that was at a really big cost of not being my true self at work and not being authentic and not being courageous, even though I, you know, I was leading teams and things, but really I was probably in the end why I lost my passion and I didn't want to do it anymore because I was only being half of myself. And now I, you know, I, I can see how people actually gravitate more to people who are authentic leaders. They gravitate more to people who are vulnerable instead of this whole, you know, facade of being so the same and having it all together, which in trying to be much more in the masculine. So it's been, you know, my journey's flipped completely the other way where now I love like the work that you're doing about being your being your true self and showing your weaknesses and your vulnerability not not that they are weaknesses but what might feel like weaknesses but it's actually just your authentic self yeah i can i can so relate to that i i spent so much time um trying to fit in and and it's it's like i mean we're such funny creatures humans right like the, the the things that we do um and it's it's so epically ironic that um, we try to fit in so people will like us, and yet people like us so much more when we're willing to be ourselves. Like it's there. I mean, it's night and day. And we try. You know, one of the another one of the really powerful moments that I took away from the training um, is uh, this i this idea, this kind of insight that the opposite of belonging is fitting in. Mm. Because with fitting in, what we are literally doing is saying, the person that I actually am is not enough, and therefore, I'm going to show you something else. I'm going to show you a masculine side. I'm going to show you competence. I'm not going to show you weakness. I'm not going to show you femininity. I'm not going to show you vulnerability. Um, and all of those things are basically denials of ourself, and there is no way we can feel we truly belong if we are denying who we really are. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it, it, I, 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 I get it. Like I, <laughs> I get it. I get, we want to, we want to be, you know, liked at work. We want to be perceived as kind of one of the gang. And, and I, the only thing I can say to anyone who is feeling that is that I promise you that letting your, your true self out will give you far more connection, um, far more belonging, far more joy than fitting in ever. could. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I love the term that, you know, both you and Brené use about, you know, this armor, which literally builds up over years and years, especially if you're working in the same industry or place for a long time, you've kind of built this armor to be this certain person. And it's quite hard to disarm yourself. And it's like you're saying, it's having these conversations that feel a little bit scary or, you know, vulnerable or but the more you step into that side, the more armor you're kind of taking off and people are seeing what's underneath that armor. Yeah, yeah completely. And um, it's funny how, how instantly that armoring up process happens, like how quickly in like a microsecond, you know, I was recently um, at an event, uh, you know, an event that we put on recently and we had a, um, a minor tech issue and uh and the tech issue you know i i i'm there was a possibility that it was my fault and a possibility that it was fault of the of the um of someone behind the desk and i'm observing this tech issue going it is definitely not my fault <laughs> and then i hear the the, <laughs> the our stage manager says to me the tech person says that you know you use the wrong codec and i'm like look at him armoring up and saying it's my fault. It's not my fault. It's his, you know, it's his fault. And then I've stopped and reflected. I'm like, I'm doing the exact same thing, like completely just trying to defend myself. It is so, it happens so fast and it's so uh, ingrained and automatic. And, you know, one of the things that, that I often think about is that the work that we're doing to bring attention to the way that we respond to things and how we show up as leaders, <clears throat> our first job is to actually see it in action. And it happens so fast and so automatically that the actually the very first step that we can hope for is to recognize it after the fact. To be able to go, oh, an hour ago when Simone said this to me and I lashed out back at her, that was me feeling shame and armoring up and defending myself by off bouncing hurt back to her. 
Um, and then to maybe bring it down to recognizing it like a half an hour later and then like 10 minutes later, you know, like to be able to recognize it in real time, that's, you know, ninja level um, emotional mastery. Uh, and so I think we, we all need to be a little compassionate with ourselves mm -hmm. about, you know, where we're at, where we're coming from, what we're striving for and how every day we can just get a little bit better at it, a little bit better at it, a little bit better at it. I love that. And I, I, I really can, I connect with that. I had a very similar conversation with a client this week and she's like, yeah, but I didn't catch it in the moment. And I was like, don't worry, you caught it. <laughs> Even that you're recognizing it now as, you know, brilliant self-awareness and it's, it's, it's a process. It's mindfulness, isn't it? Really the whole thing is just being aware of what's coming up for you and knowing and taking responsibility that it's what's happening in you rather than outside of you. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about something like, think about, uh, you know, a, an, a, an argument you've had with someone um, and imagine that a half an hour later, the person comes to you and says, wow, I realized that in that argument, I was really being defensive and I'm really sorry about it. Like, you know, how quickly your anger towards that person would dissipate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the fact that it's a half an hour later, an hour later, a day later, like it doesn't really matter. The, the critical thing is to start mm -hmm. and to start because the more you do it, then the shorter that lag will become and the better you'll get at it. Mm -hmm. I think there's probably quite a few people listening, thinking, oh, I, I want to be more courageous and I want to have these conversations maybe with my boss or with my colleagues. How do I have a courageous conversation and what, what does that look like? Yeah, so we call those rumbles. <laughs> and one thing that I'm mindful of is that Brene Brown uses a lot of words that are very kind of American mm -hmm. uh, in flavor. And I, I don't think the words are as critical, the, the really critical thing is the shared meaning um, of the words less than whether you use that specific word. So, um, so if you don't enjoy the word rumble, find something else that, that works for you as long as you have a, a shared meaning with the people you're engaging with. Um, and a rumble really, it's a, a meeting or a discussion um, that is characterized by a few commitments. And so one of them is a commitment to lean into vulnerability, um, to be willing to, you know, own your own part uh, in that story. Um, another is uh, the willingness to stick with it, to stick with the messy middle of problem identification uh, and solving. Um, but at the same time, to be willing to um, take a break and circle back when necessary. So a lot of these things, you know, these difficult conversations are often happening in contexts where we're susceptible to um, having something trigger us to bring out the worst side of ourselves, right? To where, where we're susceptible to having our temperatures go up and our you know, vision turn red and to saying things that we will not ultimately be proud of. And so um, in a rumble, you want to be willing to say, you know what, Simone, I'm going to need to take uh, 10 minutes here or half an hour here. And can we pick this up? I just need a, a few minutes of process and let's, let's circle back. Mm -hmm. The critical thing there is making sure that you circle back because otherwise you're just running away from the conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I mentioned already to be willing to own our own part. Um, it, it never has a, a difficult conversation occurred where, you know, I come to you and I say, Simone, I've noticed some behaviors of yours and I'd really like you to address them. And you say, that's great. Thank you for sharing that with me. I'll, I'll get right on that. And you walk away. Like there's always two parts to that conversation. And like I was mentioning in, in, in my example with the, with the tech guy, you know, making sure that we're as mindful of our own role in our own part as we are of the role and part of the other parties to that conversation is really essential. Um, and then finally, and for me, one of my absolute favorites is um, this um, imperative that we need to listen with the same passion with which we want to be heard. And so often with these things, we come in, you know, we've rehearsed what we're going to say. We know what we want, the, how we want the other person to respond. We're fully prepared and we come in and we give our little speech and then we're like, yeah, I did it. And, uh, and the, the fact is that we have to make space for the other person to give their speech and to truly hear what they're saying because we only ever have the tiniest perspective on any given situation and what we can do in a rumble is open ourselves up to double that perspective by listening to the other person with the same passion with which we want to be heard. So that's really what a courageous conversation looks like. It's, um, you know, bringing our best self to it. It's um, staying calm. It's holding people to account without shaming or blaming, um, owning our own parts uh, and, and really, you know, showing up to, to sit with that, um, that messiness and that imperfectness and that um, vulnerability and that kind of um, scariness 
so that you can come out of it with a stronger relationship, with a constructive outcome, um, with um, something more powerful than what you went in with. Mm, thank you. I think those are really practical tools that we can, you know, work on and practice. It's a practice that's, that's um, ongoing for all of us. And sometimes you like imagine if a whole organization was having those courageous conversations, how powerful it would be. Yeah, completely. It's one of the things that we find is that because we've um, been doing this work now with um, a, a number of organizations in addition to the open programs that we run. And um, we've what we found is we go and we do a session with the senior leadership team and then we do a session with the senior leadership team and the next group in the organization and the more that we do that the more it starts to become normalized and um, it's kind of standard practice in terms of expected behavior across the organization and once that happens it's you know it becomes unstoppable mm. it's just it's incredibly transformative um, having people engage in this way mm. Mm, yeah, I can see why. So how do we um, learn to rise? <laughs> um, so learning to rise is the fourth skill set of vulnerability. Um, the first one is that rumbling with vulnerability. The second is living into our values. Uh, the third is um, braving trust. And then the fourth is learning to rise. And the idea there is that if we are brave enough, often enough, we will fall. If we are, uh, if we are showing up with with courage and with vulnerability uh, and doing our best every single day, at some point, it is all going to go terribly wrong, and we'll say the wrong thing, and we'll do the wrong thing, and we'll we'll try to have a a rumble, and we'll you know blow up at the other person instead, and blame them for everything that's ever happened to us. And, you know, at some point, we're just we are we are human, and we are fallible, and and it will happen. And so, um, the only way that this becomes integrated into how we engage with each other as humans is if when that happens, we are able to um, rise again and try again. Um, and so learning to rise is, it's basically a three-step process. The first step is, uh, Brene, <laughs> Brene calls it three steps, the reckoning, the rumble, and the revolution. These are not just American terms. These are <laughs> Texan terms, right? Like, it's like she, she gave this, uh, this talk in New Hampshire, somewhere in the Northeast of America, some, somewhere, and she said the reckoning, the rumble, and the revolution, and someone in the audience went, yee-haw! <laughs> like, it's, it's very Texan terms. Um, but really what we're looking for, that first step, the reckoning, I, I almost think of it as the recognition um, rather than the reckoning, it is basically recognizing when we are hooked by emotion. And, you know, we just talked about that earlier. Like sometimes it takes us an hour or a day to recognize that, but the sooner we, the, the, the more we can bring that into real time or as close to real time as possible, the more powerful it becomes. What hooked me? How did I get hooked? What did it feel like in my body? What were my responses? What were my thoughts? What was the story I was telling? Um, you know, the more we can understand those things, the, the more that empowers us and equips us to be able to go, oh, this person just said this, my temperature went up. I'm going to take myself out of here for half an hour. I'm going to come back and have a brave conversation with them, you know, and we can have a more constructive response than just our automatic defense mechanisms. Um, so that's the reckoning. The rumble is what we just talked about in terms of being able to have those courageous conversations. And then the revolution is the work that we do to bring the reckoning and the rumble into daily practice, to not have it be like, a, oh, every six months I have to have one difficult conversation, but to actually make it part of who we are and how we engage on a consistent basis. So that includes things like looking at the delta or the difference between what was actually going on and the story we were telling ourselves about what was going on. Mm -hmm. um, looking at what are the consistent things that trigger our, our, our armoring up process and our defense mechanisms. Looking at what are the consistent things in terms of how we, how we respond um, to, in order to protect ourselves. Do we um, you know, attack others? Do we work really hard to try to please other people and become what they want us to be? Do we shut down and withdraw? Like what are, what are those consistent patterns that we're using? Um, and with understanding the consistency of those patterns, it starts to allow us to transform them on a consistent and systematic basis rather than on a singular kind of one-off basis. And that's, that's why it's called the revolution because it is really nothing short of a revolution in how we show up as leaders, how we engage with each other and how we connect with the other people in our lives. Mm, yeah, I love that question of what is the story what is the story you're telling yourself at the moment? I think Brenna Brown says you can either walk inside your story and own it or stand outside your story and hustle for your worthiness. 
And I think it's it's such a great self-reflection question. It's always like, what's the story I'm telling myself right now? And it really opens up, opens up a lot. Yeah. And, and so often those stories are so ingrained that we forget that they're stories in the first place. We think mm-hmm. they're facts um, and, and, and they're not <laughs> and well, because they're and stories. We have the power to change them. Absolutely. And many of those stories came from when we were five or six or seven years old and we've just okay. built on those stories until they feel so real for us. Yeah. Mm. So just a couple of questions about you from kind of more personal questions for you, Kyla. Do you have a favorite book or quote that you feel has been a guiding force in your life? I'm sure there has been many. (laughs) So many. I have so many. And, you know, I've already um, used many from Brene, obviously. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you someone, I'll give you one from somebody else. Well, um, one of my favorite quotes is, um, if we knew the secret history of our enemies, we would find there enough sorrow and suffering to dispel all animosity. And to me, it's one of my absolute favorites because so often I know when I get angry with people, um, I I go into a, a story about them and about what they care about or don't care about and what their motivations are uh, and are not. And I know that when I get angry, I understand my full story, right? I understand what, what's brought me to that point. And, um, because of that, I can, uh, I can understand why I'm angry and, and, and forgive myself for it. Um, and that quote to me is a constant reminder that if I had that same understanding for other people, then, uh, my anger toward them would most likely dissipate. And that is not about, letting people get away with whatever they want. Um, and certainly this work about vulnerability and rumbling uh, and listening with the passion with which we want to be heard, that is not about letting people get away with whatever they want. It's not about being a pushover or a walkover. It's about um, practicing boundaries. As, as as one of my heroes, Matt Brown, says, practicing boundaries instead of building walls. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, holding people to account, as Brene says, without shaming or blaming. Um, so, so that's, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll leave you with that. Mm, No, I like that. I think all of us can really, you know, connect with that and, and use it in our lives. So thank you. So what are you working on in your, on your, in yourself right now? Uh, you know, I'm on this continuous journey in terms of leadership. Um, we just ran a large event, uh, over the weekend, uh, across the, across Saturday and Sunday, we had close to 2000 people come along to our event and, uh, at the beginning of last week, you know, we were in the final stretches of that event and um, I, I caught myself, um, you know, I was, I was uh, under pressure and I caught myself becoming short uh, with, the, with people on the team. And, um, you know, luckily I was able to have a conversation with someone on my team and um, think through what would what the rest of the team was going through and what would be a more constructive way to behave and it really allowed us to kind of shift that and it was just a constant reminder that I need constant reminders um, so those are the things that I'm working on every day and and it's uh, it's it's definitely a, a journey not a destination there is no oh yay now I'm a brave leader it's like oh no I, I messed it up again all right let's let's let me circle back and uh, and own that and and try again so um, mm. yeah what I'm working on now is probably what I'll be working on for the rest of my life. Yeah, but with beautiful self-awareness, which is yes, so important in a leader. So what do you believe your purpose in the world is, Kyla? Uh, my purpose is to be an uplifting presence. And I thought I, I established that purpose for myself quite a long time ago and, and quite intentionally. And the, the, one of the big aspects of that is that I am really mindful that I cannot um, I cannot take ownership of anyone else's experience or behavior or life uh, or opportunities. And so I was really careful when I was thinking about the, the, what I wanted to have as my life purpose, that I didn't want it to be something about like helping other people, which inherently creates this kind of power imbalance um, and inherently um, sets, sets it up as an ego driven uh ambition rather than um, a service ambition. And so with that purpose, you know, I, I know that I know I'm showing up every day with um, flaws and with mistakes and with, you know, stumbles, just like, just like we all are. And uh, my hope is that I can show up 
to those um, with uh, a heart and a commitment to do better that uh, allows other people the space to to show up uh, in that way themselves. And so that's that's what I'm striving for every day. Beautiful. And I really believe you are living your purpose. You can you can see it in everything you do. It's so, so wonderful. Do you have any other words of wisdom or anything else you wanted to share with our listeners? And we're going to talk a little bit about the upcoming course in a moment too, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, I guess the biggest thing is that there is no, there is no mystery to this stuff. This is not, it's not, it's not for an elite few. It's not, you know, it's not, oh, there are those people over there are living this really courageous life, but I could never do that. This is stuff that is accessible to everyone. It is um, behavioral practices that anyone can implement. It is, um, it is open, it is totally democratic and open to everyone. Um, and as you said earlier, it, it's applicable, um, you know, in any context where you're engaging with other people. And so I guess I just want, um, I just want people to know that um, this is not a magic thing for certain special people that every single person on this planet um, has the ability to, um, to be courageous um, and to, to uh, live uh, with more courage and 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 empathy, and um, I'm grateful to the research and the work that um, Brene and the team have done to articulate in such in such uh, with such specificity what that looks like, um, so that more of us can bring that out in ourselves. Mm, yeah, that's wonderful. And I guess from here, people, you've got people curious <laughs> about this work, um, myself included, and the next step if people want to dive deeper into this i know you've got two workshops coming up in auckland in christchurch and you've offered a very um generous discount of 10 percent off um using a code with called living with which i'll put in the show notes living with but can you share i know there's one coming up in auckland on the 9th and 10th of september and then the Christchurch is in November. Can you share just a little bit about kind of where we would go on that course and, and who that might be interesting to? Yeah, absolutely. So the course is the full um, Dare to Lead curriculum uh, that, um, that I trained to deliver. And uh, it's two days. Um, it's for, uh, you know, as we said, that definition of leaders, anyone who sees the potential in people and processes and who is willing to work to bring about that potential. Um, the first time we ran the program was last month in Christchurch. We were um, sold out with uh, over 70 people in the room and we had, you know, chief executives from big organizations. We had people who run nonprofits. We had educators in the room. Uh, we had uh, a family, an entire family, mom, dad, two kids come to the, uh, come to the course. So it was a really, um, a very broad range of people and, um, an extremely, extremely welcoming uh, kind of group. Um, really, we go through the four skill sets of courage, rumbling with vulnerability, living into our values, braving trust, and learning to rise. Um, we do a deep dive into each of them and understanding the frameworks and behaviors that underpin those. Um, so you come away with, again, those extremely practical, tangible, specific uh, uh, tools for how you can apply this um, immediately as soon as you leave the program. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's a full two days. It's a phenomenal two days. And, uh, yeah, I, I really welcome any of your listeners to join us and, and we're delighted to extend that, um, living with code for, uh, for 10% off of, of either of those programs. Mm, thank you so much. That's so kind. And I know I was absolutely captivated by your ability to storytell, which is, a, you know, a real gift. And I know that's a gift of Brené's as well, that you're obviously sharing, um, you know, that beautiful, way of engaging people through wonderful stories but also through very practical ways to apply this so um i'm excited and uh, i really know that i could ask you so many questions on so many different topics but it's just been so insightful and wonderful to have had you here for the past hour i think it's been so thank you for your time kyla and i know thank i'll be you. seeing you again soon awesome thanks so much for having me simone it's been great to talk to you thank you